Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith, mental health, and how the church can bridge the gap between them. Today, we will be beginning a discussion on depression. Here are your hosts, Michael McCord, Evan DeYoung, and Lindsay Geist. Hello, everyone. I am Evan, and welcome to the Not Alone podcast. We're so excited that you are here to join us as we talk about faith and mental health. I'm here with Michael and Lindsay. I'll let them introduce themselves. Michael, your name was first this time. Oh, you I get to go, go first. first. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> My name is Michael McCord. It's good to meet you guys or see you guys again. I don't know what the right word to say. You know, it's kind of weird because be when you've been listening be for a video. while, you feel like you could see it like we know each other. And that's the kind of cool thing about this. But anyway, um, good to be with you here today. And I am, I'm a Wesley director at heart today. Uh, I serve in this role where I help Wesley foundations all over the state of Georgia and really the country, uh, Evan and I together to support these ministries to help, help reach college students. And uh, I'm also a parent. In fact, right now, my five-year-old, you can't see this as real life people. My five-year-old is shirtless, wandering in my front yard, eating a <laughs> breakfast bar. So um, if you see me kind of... <laughs> it is 2.48 p.m. <laughs> it is 2.48 p.m. <laughs> and uh, so if you see me kind of look off to the side, it's because he's wandering around the front yard right now. Uh, anyway, we're good to go. Lindsay? I love that this episode is not about judging your parenting skills. We're just noting what's that's, happening around you. That's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, everybody. I'm Lindsay Geist. I'm a pastor in the North Georgia Conference of the Methodist Church, as well as a licensed clinical social worker. I have a background of working with individuals as they wrestle with anxiety and depression and uh, help churches have more of these conversations. That's great. Well, thank you guys again for being here. We're obviously very excited to be able to jump back into uh, a fun discussion and get some of your wisdom and thoughts and experience uh, out there in the world. And this week, we are going to talk about depression. Last week, we talked a little bit about anxiety, and we kind of identified those as kind of the, the top two common things that people are going to kind of encounter and, and interact with during their lives and the relationships that they have with friends and family, coworkers, etc. So, Lindsay, I think one thing that's really important to clarify is kind of what is depression and what is the difference between just being sad and being depressed? Because I feel like a lot of the time they get used kind of interchangeably and I don't really know how to identify the difference. Yeah, I think that's an important first question. We seem to use them in our common vocabulary and slang language a lot and just act like uh, they're both the same thing, but they're really not. Um, Sadness is an emotion that all of us can feel. Um, It's very normal, very human. Uh, Any sort of uh, event can trigger it. And so it's usually event-based that uh, you just got broken up with, uh, you know, you have to move. Uh, you lost your job. Those are all things that can make us sad. Depression is uh, a common kind of quick on the surface way to describe it is pervasive sadness. So sadness that uh, is around way longer um, than just kind of a fleeting moment. Uh, Sadness usually passes. Depression is something that doesn't pass quickly. Uh, It is something that sticks with us um, and no outlook 
looks promising. It's not just one event that's making us uh, possibly sad or having a negative input, like outlook on the world. It is uh, pretty much everything around you is feeling that way. And so depression has a number of clinical symptoms that we could talk about uh, moving forward, but that's kind of an on the surface difference between the two Can, of those. Let me, let me ask you a question. Uh, yeah. So I see that I, I, I get your kind of the differentiation about sadness kind of being often triggered by an event, but, but I also hear a lot of times people who talk about depression being triggered by some event or series of events mm -hmm. too, that, that it, that sure. it, that sort of the difference is that it's this deep lasting ongoing sort of pervasive sadness that kind of comes out of maybe an event uh, that happened either someone, some early in someone's life or just recently that can create a depressive, depressive state or. Being. Yeah. I think right? that's a great, I think that's a great point to bring up that events can trigger depression. They don't have to, um, as we've talked before, when it comes to mental health, uh, sometimes certain mental health conditions are uh, genetic, and then certain things are caused by some sort of event or trauma. Um, and so, or it can be a combination of both of those things. And so I don't want to say that like an event never causes depression, but usually um, sadness is response to only that one event a lot of times, and it doesn't input impact anything else. And depression is an event may start it, but it doesn't mean that that's the only thing that you're sad about moving forward. Um, okay. What, what's like, what's the cutoff? Like, I feel like sometimes like you ever have a bad day and it's like one thing kind of feeds into another and then you're kind of just in a bad mood, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, this isn't going right. And then of course this isn't going right either. And then like something else will happen. And um, it seems like for me, I don't know what that is. Like if it happens again, like over days, like if I go to bed and I wake up and I'm still feeling like deep in it, is there a specific kind of cutoff or, or, or what is, how do they even determine that clinically? Okay. So just something to know is that like, even when I share some of these clinical thoughts, please do not sit at home and all of a sudden be diagnosing yourself. Um, I, know, I already am. <laughs> I have everything that we've talked about so far. I have a list. I have a sheet of paper. I have a feelings wheel, and I have, it's just it looks like a conspiracy theory tangled web. It's okay. okay. I'm also um, I'm also diagnosing you too off of her using my layman you. skills, using her words. I'm diagnosing you too. So don't worry. Perfect. So I just want to explain that some of this is nuanced along the way, um, and it's not perfectly cut and dry. Right. Uh, so depression, the first thing is that this, uh, you have to have one of two key symptoms that lasting more than two weeks, almost every day, if not every day. Uh, the first one is some sort of depressed mood. Uh, again, that's pervasive sadness lasting every single day for minimum two weeks. Uh, and by pervasive impacting every part of your day, pretty much. Okay. The other uh, one that is important to think about uh, is if you've lost your interest in all sorts of regular things that used to bring you pleasure and joy. Mm -hmm. um, if 
that loss of interest or pleasure. So think about all the activities and hobbies that you do. If you love to read and then you don't want to pick up any sort of book at all, uh, that can usually be kind of like a key sign Mm -hmm. for you that something's going on. Um, And so if that's happening almost every day for more than two weeks or depressed mood almost every day, for more than two weeks. Those are your key initial indicators. Mm -hmm. From there, there are a lot more uh, symptoms that you can start looking at. Um, Any extreme weight loss. Yeah, let me just, let me pause. I just want to pause for a second right there because I think those are, I, thinking through like a parent's perspective or a, a leader, a youth leader or a, a campus leader, like someone who works with young people, what's, how do you get to sort of, you started making some observations that a student, maybe, maybe a student who comes to your program is always full of energy and in life. And then they start for the last couple of weeks, they've been coming and they just, they just see like they're carrying the weight of the world on them. Right. Um, or you're a parent and you've, you've seen a, a mood change. Like how, how do you go about sort of trying to identify whether this is something I need to really address? Like this is a serious issue or are they just sort of going through this, this phase? Cause I know, I know my kids go through like weeks where they're just nuts and then other weeks they're like charming and wonderful. And then the next week they're just kind of like, Oh, I'm just like, so how there, there's a lot of ebb and flow that happens in your kid's life. So how do you sort of distinguish you know, the difference between this is something I really should, should check out, or this might just be a normal ebb and flow of, of my kid's life. Does it make sense what I'm asking? Yeah. Um, I don't have a perfect answer to that. And most of these are like, what is the right thing to do? Um, when does it hit this threshold? I think the first thing we need to be doing is opening dialogue with our kids, start talking to them about this. Is this something you seem like you've been acting a little different? Have you noticed this about yourself? Are you having this feeling almost every day? Or is this something that you're experiencing and feeling uh, just a couple days and the rest of the time uh, you're just kind of moody or annoyed at me? Um, I think sometimes we make a lot of assumptions about people. Mm. And so that's... (laughs) So certainly not the people in this call. No, definitely not. Um, So that's what I tell parents is the most important first step and probably not just parents, but any of us that are leaders or we see this happening with our friends um, where we start having problems is when we're making assumptions about other people without trying to engage them in some dialogue. Uh, I think that people can enlighten us some And maybe they have not seen this in themselves and you opening the conversation will flag that or something. Uh, But I think the first step is just trying to open the conversation. I, I love that. I think one, because that's attainable for a person to do, but two, I think it is in my experience, it's often one of the last things that happens. So I've worked with youth groups before, lots of youth groups over my years, and and, and campus ministers all over the country. And and people will call me when there's a situation. And generally, they are 
trying to diagnose a situation without actually talking to that student. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like, so you have a youth leader who sees that their student is no longer acting the same way that they used to act. Mm-hmm. They are assuming, they start to assume lots of, they start writing this narrative, which incidentally, sometimes is a form of transference or, or so they're putting their, their own like past experiences onto this person, you know, and, and they don't take the chance just to talk to them in in a way that's, I think, I think maybe a key is the sort of a way to approach that's non-judgmental or, or I think mm-hmm. like in a, like in a court situation, non-leading, you know, mm-hmm. is there a way to invite conversations that there's not a right answer that they need to give? Um, mm-hmm. So t- t- talk to me about, maybe give me some, in your experience as a counselor, like what are some, some questions or some some interactions with a, with somebody that might help us understand a little bit more about what they're going through. Asking somebody how they're feeling again, not making that assumption, but saying, how have you been feeling lately? Also asking, has anything happened or changed in your life lately? A lot of times uh, there are things that have impacted us that we probably don't know about. Um, I think about, Uh, If we all went back to our teenage selves, there's probably moments when a friend, it felt like a friend betrayed us or we didn't do well on a test or we didn't get included in something and it really impacted us. But because we weren't articulating that to other people, we looked moody and annoyed to everybody else in our house. Um, when in reality, it was something else that was going on and most likely not triggering depression. It was us trying to internalize and process a sad event that happened. Mm. Mm. Um, Mm. And so, again, sometimes the way we act from the outside is uh, appear to be acting from the outside uh, does not reflect what's happening internally. And that, that's true about us as adults as well. So ac- asking for some context clues from somebody that you're having this conversation with, youth, young adult, friend, parent, um, is going to be important uh, to understand uh, what else is impacting somebody's mood. Mm-hmm. So... Here's something that I encounter frequently, especially working with students and young people, is that whether you like it or not, we love to self-diagnose. <laughs> so it mm-hmm. gets thrown around a lot that like, oh, I've just been really depressed lately. And it's this, it's this language that we use that kind of just in interjects kind of the clinical diagnosis on how we've been feeling. Oh, I've been, I was sad a couple of times this week. So I had a depressing week, right? It, it just has worked its way into kind of our vernacular. And so what do you think, and especially you too, Michael, like, what do you think we can do as kind of peers and as leaders to be able to help shape that language and that conversation in a way that I feel like it's just a non-positive framing of like a current situation, but I think it's because we don't have, we don't have a, a better way to describe it. Right. We don't, we don't have a, a language set, especially I think in the church, I, I think secular organizations or, or there, there are athletic organizations. I, I think they, they sometimes um, 
maybe get better at this than we as the church, because the church mm-hmm. doesn't, there, there is some, as we've taught previously, some fallacies around the idea that there's a theological understanding that, that, that depression or anxiety is, is a response to sinfulness or is an example of, you know, sinfulness that you, well, I think so maybe sitting, so you're depressed and maybe and we should, cause that's where we were going to go next. Maybe we should just go ahead and, and, and deal with that and then come back around. Cause I think what we well, think, well, I, but theologically I think, affects language too. Well, I do. I do. I think, and that's what I, what I, what I think is, would be, would be helpful both in the context as a parent in a context, context of the church is to just start talking about it. Mm-hmm. And if, especially your, but not just your young people, I think adults too have a problem talking about it. So as a, as a theological leader, as a pastor of a church or, or an organization, I think you have this potential, this opportunity to use words and descriptions about your own feelings that empowers other people to use them too. Mm-hmm. And then as a parent, you have that same power to say, to use the words appropriately, to think, you know, I've, I'm kind of sad this week. I, I had a really hard time at work this week and I'm just, I'm just feeling kind of down or I'm really stressed and anxious about this, this big project that's at work or, or I'm trying to make ends meet in a, in a pandemic and it's really anxious producing to use, use words that are appropriate and that invite conversation from your, your students or your, your, your lay people or your, your kids, you know, in a way that you're sort of, I, I think the thing is, I guess what I'm getting to is churches often don't talk about depression, anxiety, and suicide until someone or something happens. Mm-hmm. And then we will throw everything at it and we will, we will come and say, Oh, you know, what, what will come with theological frameworks. We'll, we'll throw all these words out and that your life really matters and you need to talk to somebody. And, and the same, same in our family systems too, is we, we won't talk, it's, we won't talk about this stuff until your aunt has a problem. And then you got to tell your kids about it, you know, and, and that's, we're the not, first we're not part. being, we're not being proactive. We're being reactive. That's only. right. That's and, right. And when you're being reactive, you're already behind the eight ball. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. I mean, that's a, yes. you, you need yes. to figure out how to catch up. And so I, I think what you're saying is incredibly helpful. What would happen if we've actually been proactive and have this dialogue up front to give equip people with language so that they can better articulate what's happening and not feel almost ashamed or though there's not anybody to talk to uh, because it's not something we talk about. That's right. Yeah. I, I was doing some uh, premarital counseling uh, this past week and um, I was talking to this young couple about finances and just how important it is to talk about finances while they're good or while they're okay, while they're not in crisis. Because if you only talk about money when it's in crisis, then money becomes a crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you talk about mental health only when it's a crisis, then mental health becomes a crisis and not a well-being. It's like when you talk about physical health, if we're only going to talk about getting physically healthy when we've had a heart attack, then physical health is a crisis as opposed to ongoing mental and physical well-being is a practice, a way of being, a living, uh, just as we breathe in and out. Um, and I just think, I think it's convicting for me as a parent, I know, um, and and as a 
as a religious leader that I think in both of those realms of the world, we, we don't talk about it until it's a crisis. Well, it seems like one of those things that I just, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but it seems like there's just this ever expanding list of things that we always need to be juggling to be the perfect parent and leader and coworker and church member. And it's just kind of this like endless cycle of things. And so I think it's really challenging when we think about this for it not to just be something else that we're not doing well. It just gets added onto the list of things. I didn't go to the gym. I didn't eat the right stuff. I didn't make the right meals for my kids. I didn't have a conversation about proactive mental health. I think that there's a lot of things that kind of add up. And so it seems to me like in a lot of ways, we're also making the scenario which causes us to feel this way. And it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I, I think I just, from your guys' perspective, what does it look like to just balance that? And I think we, we want to talk more about just balance in general as we kind of go on in further weeks. But I'm catching that in this moment that this has become just even for us one of those things that it's like well shoot when was the last time i talked to my family and close friends about their mental health and was vulnerable first hmm. the, the, the good thing is is that i would say that the the one thing that the p- pandemic has done is that it has opened up those doors a lot more I we're in the middle that- of the covid19 pandemic uh, so that's right that's right if some of if you were listening in 2021 and you stumbled upon this. We went through this thing called a pandemic. I don't know if you but remember if it. If there's been a second one, this is the first one. So I'm hoping that I'm hoping that when I say the pandemic, I'm talking about 2020, just in general. And we just got killer hornet wasp things too. Apparently, did you see yeah. that? We should. Yeah, we should talk about. You know, maybe the plagues are happening again. Um, but. Going back to the real stuff that we were talking about. Uh, yeah. The wasps I, are real. <laughs> all, a lot of this comes back to modeling and um, opening the door to be able to uh, be more vulnerable and authentic to one another. The beautiful thing that I have found about the pandemic is that it has stripped away a lot of walls with people. Um it is a lot harder to hide uh, that we don't have it all together. Mm-hmm. And what a gift that can be for all of us. Because when we're seeing other people's real life, it's rec- it's going, oh, I'm not the only one experiencing sure. this real life. And so hopefully it's opening the door for us to have more dialogue like this that says, that asks, how are we really doing and how are we really feeling? Um, as a, as a parent or a friend or a leader, I think modeling some of this, as we've talked about in other episodes, and mm-hmm. asking people uh, how they're feeling and what they're experiencing. Maybe if you are somebody that is currently sitting at home for dinner every night with your family because none of us are leaving our houses to go out to eat, mm-hmm. um, what a great new opportunity to start having more of this dialogue. And by even saying this week has been really hard for me, I was sad. And then I was worried some, and then I had some really happy moments. What was that Mm -hmm. like for you? Yeah. I mean, I think I would, I would push back Evan in. Yes. I think, I think you are correct. I think that the, that, that leaders of all sorts and parents who, who are leaders of their family units 
um, feel an enormous weight on them to do all these things like this, this responsibility to try to, and there's like some running checklist of all the things you have to do. But what I would argue is what we're talking about today is actually about being, uh, is putting, is taking your walls down. I think, I think there is in the religious world, there is this conceptualization that we have to present ourselves as fully healthy human beings in order to be a pastor i have to have a physical exam a, a mental health exam i got a, a credit report like we we set up this scenario where we we have this expectation that religious leaders faith leaders are somehow have all their stuff together mm-hmm. and so when you're standing at that pulpit on sunday there's this incredible pressure to present yourself as having it all together uh, because you're somehow modeling God to these people. I'm just being completely honest with you, what it feels like some Mm -hmm. days. And so what I'm saying to religious leaders is stop putting up your walls, start to be who you really are. And and that's a process. It's not going to happen. You can't go up next week and just, I would not advise you going up next Sunday and dumping everything you've ever done on the congregation. That's not what I'm coming down. Do not word vomit your entire trauma from the pulpit. You should only be talking about your pain. If you have already processed it in another safe place, if you are a pastor and a leader, Um, you are not using your congregation as your processing. I think that applies to just leadership in general too, though. Yeah. It applies to your children too. You don't, you don't need your children don't need to know the full depth of the hurt you experienced as a child uh, or that we take it or, or what happened. Yeah. Your pets can golden doodles are particularly good. Talk to the dog. Listening My wife makes me talk it out with the dog when I like, when I need to talk through a problem. When when she doesn't want to listen to you. Well, she's in the room too, but (laughs) when she knows that I'm looking for like context clues for feedback for like how I should like, you know, respond. She's like, I'll listen. Why don't you just talk it out with the dog? And so then I, I think that's really so. But I, I, I think I think that's a, a, actually a tool for what we're getting at because it yeah. is it is about how do you, um, how do you start to be fully yourself with people? That's what vulnerability means, right? To be fully myself with people and to be transparent. And I think you know, in terms of this mental health conversation, I think that's a it's a it's a stepwise process. You yourself have to get comfortable talking about feelings. You yourself have to figure out the words you want to use when it talks about feelings. And 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 then start to practice that use with your family, maybe with your spouse or some close friends, and then some with your children. And, and start to, it, it's not like you have to tomorrow go talk about suicide, anxiety, and depression with your kids or with your family or with your church. Like that, that's not the healthy option either. I think it is that to recognize you have feelings and that your feelings run the full gamut, that joy, happiness, laughter, ridiculousness. Um, Sometimes you're childish. Sometimes you're very mature. Sometimes you're sad and angry and hurt and depressed. And that to recognize that you are all of those things and that, that God created you to be and inhibit and, and to experience all of those things, just as God, as we talked before about the incarnate, experienced the fullness of humanity, that those emotions, all of that is 
is is an expression of who you are and that that you need to get to a place where you appreciate that. You appreciate sadness because sadness is a reminder of the hurt that's in the world. You appreciate joy because you remember that there are unexpected things that leap in your life that, that give you um, excitement to move forward. And, and I think, again, it's sort of that idea of mindfulness that you just take in what you're experiencing, talk about it with other people. And that is that will model for your children and for those who you might be a leader of to say, hey, wow, Evan, Evan expresses all of his, he talks about those things, the good things and the bad things. Maybe I feel like I can talk about those with him too. And that's really what we want to get at, because at that point, you create an opportunity where you and, and your, your, your child or you and your student had this opportunity to have a, a really important conversation that may help them uh, express who they are, and they've never had that chance before. Hmm. I think that's, those are great thoughts as we kind of wrap up. Lindsay, what would you add? I, I think that Michael like gave a great you know, speech right there. We can just mic drop at that. Yeah. I, I think, I think that, that it's looking like this is probably, there's some things that we left uh, unanswered because of time and being concise. Because um, we, we didn't really talk about the theology element of faith within that. What does it look like? Why would we be depressed if things are good? What are some of the causes? What definitely aren't some of the causes? What are some biblical figures who probably went through a depression. What did that look like? How can we learn from their example? Uh, and then we, ne we never really addressed one of the primary things that I feel like a lot of us deal with when we deal with depression, either in ourselves or others, which is that sense of helplessness, that idea of, well, this is, you just need to do this. And that answer, which generally comes up with, I, I just can't, I can't right now. It's not, it's not physically possible. I can't get out of bed. I can't write the paper. I can't get up. I can't apologize that feeling of helplessness that comes with that I think is going to be really important for us to address so uh, mm -hmm. stay tuned in future weeks as we kind of touch on some of those other topics of depression Michael Lindsay thank you so much again for uh, your words of wisdom and your friendship and uh, this time for conversation just want to say thanks everyone for listening and thanks to Justin Patton who produces our podcast and also does the intro music if you want to collaborate with Justin on a project, you can check him out at airgigs.com. That's Justin Patton at airgigs.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode.